Hello and welcome all of my artists, writers, performers, and creatives of all kinds. This is Raven's Fine Art Podcast. My name is Raven, and today we're going to be talking about the next in the series of the Seven Steps of Genius from Leonardo da Vinci. We are continuing our journey through the book, How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci, Seven Steps to Genius Every Day. And today's topic is fumato, literally going up in smoke. How comfortable are you with paradox? Well, let's find out. Stay tuned. All right, so let's get into it. So again, our topic is Sfumato, going up in smoke, is the literal definition. But the definition we're going to be working with today is a willingness to embrace ambiguity, paradox, and uncertainty. So this is a very important aspect of genius, the ability to hold two seemingly very different beliefs and, and hold them both as true and understand that they can both be true in different circumstances. Um, so what this means to me is basically a moving away from very literal minded or black and white thinking. So this is the kind of thinking of children. Children tend to think in black and white, and that is a very necessary step in development. But as we increase in maturity and also intelligence, we understand that life holds many paradoxes. So to the extent that you're comfortable with that and can be at ease with that notion is the extent to which you can maximize your level of genius. So it's really interesting that uh, Leonardo da Vinci um, is our subject because he definitely was comfortable with um, the disparities or the paradoxes between truths. Um, so one of the things that I thought about in reading this chapter was Leonardo da Vinci as a person. He was a man, um, but he was rumored to be homosexual. Um, so he would have had to have been comfortable um, with the idea that uh, he was working in mostly religious um, iconography um, and of course the church and the society had a very um, negative attitude towards homosexuality and still does for the most part. So he would have had to be comfortable you know, working with um, church imagery but also being comfortable with himself. And what I really find interesting is how his um, how this paradox shows up in his artwork. Uh, looking at the painting of St. John the Baptist, it's really funny because when I first saw it, I didn't realize it was John the Baptist. I thought it was a woman. <laughs> so it's very interesting how, you know, I really think that if he were alive today, he would be non-binary. Now I have no direct evidence for that. It's just my belief that he seemed very comfortable with the um, balance between the male and the female and liking to blur the differences. Um, St. John the Baptist painting is, uh, he, St. John the Baptist is very feminized, long hair, very soft, rounded body and face. 
and he's pointing upwards. Um, so that pointing upwards was kind of like a question mark. It was sort of like an enigma. Um, and also with obviously Mona Lisa, there's been incredibly, um, throughout the years, a large amount of rumors about who the Mona Lisa is. Uh, is it really Leonardo? And it's really, a, um, it was interesting to see the evidence for some people believing that it was actually a self-portrait because when you lay up his, um, his own self-portrait, his drawing next to the image of the Mona Lisa, they do match up feature to feature, eyes, nose, mouth, hair, everything. So that's really interesting. So no one actually knows exactly who the Mona Lisa is, uh, whether it's a self-portrait or whether it's the mistress of so-and-so or this and that. Um, and the Mona Lisa itself, the smile has always been um, rumored to be this sort of enigma because if you look at if you look at the painting and you stare at the eyes, which most of us, when we're looking at someone, look at the eyes first, she appears to be smiling. But when you actually look at the mouth, the mouth isn't smiling. And so it's this weird thing. If you go back and forth, look at the mouth, look at the eyes, look at the mouth, it's really trippy. <laughs> so, and this was seemed to be one of Leonardo's favorite paintings because he kept it and he, he took it with him when he moved. Um, so he knew it was really cool. And he was just really comfortable with, um, you know, that paradox. Is she smiling? Is she not? Who is she? Is it me? <laughs> and I love that. And I really think that he wouldn't want to be gendered. I think that he would be really be comfortable with um, androgyny because it showed up in his paintings way back when it was not cool nor acceptable to explore these ideas. He kind of did it on the down low, which is really, really cool to me. Um, and even when I think about the Mona Lisa smile, to me, and I don't know if he was, because he wasn't a woman, so he didn't have that experience, but when you think about how women and actually any kind of oppressed um, group has to conduct themselves in the larger society, there always has to be this sort of mask that you wear where you know what is acceptable to the external society, but you have your own thoughts, feelings, and opinions inside of yourself. And there is this necessity for survival's sake to hide that to some extent, to wear a mask that's acceptable um, so that you can survive and thrive in the society. And so I don't know if, if Leonardo was purposefully working with that idea, but that's what I think about when I look at the Mona Lisa the fact that women have to sort of, you, you're smiling and you're not smiling. You, you may be smiling to get yourself out of an uncomfortable or even dangerous situation, but inside you may feel something very different. So I really thought that was cool that, you know, sometimes when artists are making a piece of work, they may not be purposefully trying to explore an idea, but it may show up in their work anyway. And that's, that's what's so cool about art. Um, so one thing that I used to do, just talking about the whole paradox and the non-binary and the paradox of male and female, one thing I used to always do when I was on dates or in a relationship is I would always ask the guy, what, what does he think are his feminine traits and what does he think are his masculine traits, you know, stereotypically. And I always got really interesting and fascinating answers. And everyone always did have an answer to that, which is really cool. 
Um, and if someone is uncomfortable with the question, then that tells you a lot about themselves in any way, that they're not comfortable with paradox and um, that they don't have that particular level of genius, really, because um, there's nothing, there should be nothing threatening about that question. But anyway, everyone always had an answer, and I thought that was really cool. So when I'm thinking about myself, um, what do I think are my masculine traits and what are my feminine traits? Um, there's, there's plenty, but I think one of the masculine traits, at least stereotypically masculine traits, is that I am relentlessly rational, um, which doesn't mean that I don't have emotions, but I tend to approach life from a very rational um, perspective and I tend to solve problems in that way. And I tend to be attracted to rational situations and people. Although in my dating life, I seem to always attract emotional men. <laughs> Nature is always seeking a balance, so that's probably the reason for that. Um, but that is my masculine trait, and I think my feminine trait would be my attention to beauty. And um, I like my living environment to be orderly and attractive, and you know the aesthetics of things are very important to me. And of course, that's also the trait of, of any artist, but that is, I think, one of my feminine traits. Um, so going back to the idea of sfumato, um, Leonardo da Vinci also had a very fluid interpretation of aesthetics. So of course his work was beautiful, but he also had a strong attraction to ugliness. Um, he had a whole series of grotesques uh, which was he kind of sought out the most odd looking people and he would just draw sketches of them. He had a whole series of, of uh, bizarre looking and unattractive people that he had sketches of. And I think that's really cool um, because that is the flip side of beauty. And really that's how we know what is beautiful is we look at the extremes. We look at what's beautiful, we look at what's grotesque, and, and both define one another. And in my experience of drawing and painting, what I have found is that the longer I look at something that may be considered conventionally ugly, the more beautiful it becomes. And I think that is simply because of the attention that I am paying to it. For example, I was once painting um, a very, very, very old subject with very intense, deep wrinkles in, in their face. And traditionally in our society, especially American society, there's really a, um, a repulsion and a rejection of, of any kind of signs of age. But that's really arbitrary and it's you know tied to our fears of death and so on and so forth. But when you really look at a creased and lined face, it's really like to draw it and to paint it, it's really, really beautiful and fascinating. And, and when you get out of the associations and connotations we have with age, the actual looking at a creased and older face is really, really fascinating and beautiful. All the different facets of it, the dips and the divots and the, you know, the turns and how the creases Kind of match their expression and it's really a fascinating experience and and that's a lesson to whenever we give our full attention to something it becomes it transforms under our gaze and that's a really um, intensely fascinating experience and i think another 
Another phenomenon of this fumato in everyday life is the phenomenon of acquired tastes. And that's something that I think most people have experienced. So the first time you taste something like coffee or alcohol or any number of things, um, it starts off being repulsive. I mean, very few people like coffee uh, the first time they taste it. And usually they have to, even when they do start drinking, have to doctor it up with milk and sugar. And then over time, the real coffee drinkers uh, begin to, especially if it's good coffee, uh, learn to love it black. Like that's the full flavor of a really good coffee is you have to drink it black to really taste it. Um, but that is definitely an acquired taste. And that's another, I think, example of sfumato in everyday life. Um, so as in all of the chapters, there is a self-assessment for sfumato. So you can assess where you fall on the scale of are you a pure black and white thinker? You have to be in control. You have to know uh, what something is at all times. Or on the other side of the scale, are you a Buddhist monk <laughs> where you're totally comfortable with ambiguity and paradox? Um, so most of us are going to fall somewhere in the middle. So here is the self-assessment for Sfumato. Number one, are you comfortable with ambiguity? Number two, are you attuned to the rhythms of your intuition? Now, intuition is definitely one of those things that falls into Sfumato. It's not facts. Um, it's not conscious knowledge. It's somewhere in the middle. It's not out of thin blue air but you're basically subconsciously taking into your, your brain and your consciousness all these facts and impressions, and then your tuition spits it back out to you as a gut feeling. So how comfortable and how attuned are you to intuition? Number three, do you thrive with change? So when things change, how comfortable are you with that? Do you get upset immediately? Do you stay upset? Do you insist on going back to what was? How comfortable are you with change? Uh, number four, can you see the humor in everyday life? So humor is definitely one of those things that Sfumato is um, an example of. So a good comedian is good at the setup. So they set up a situation and you're expecting one thing and they give you something else. And that's why it's funny. That's what makes us laugh when our expectations are, um, are frustrated um, or when we relate to something that they're saying. Um, but seeing the humor in everyday life, we see the contradictions in what we do. Um, and that's, that's what's humorous about it. Uh, number five, do you have a tendency to jump to conclusions? So if you do, that is more of a black and white thinking. Do you think you already know everything already? So you immediately make a snap decision. Next, do you enjoy riddles, puzzles, and puns? Next, do you usually know when you're feeling anxious? So being in tune to how you feel, especially something like anxiety, which can creep up on you very slowly, um, that is definitely comfort in Sfumato. So knowing how you feel at all times is kind of being aware of the paradoxes of your emotions from one minute to the next. Next, do you spend a su sufficient amount of time on your own? Next is, do you trust your gut? So that goes back to intuition. Next, can you comfortably hold contradictory ideas in your mind? 
Now this this point reminded me of love in general. So someone who loves easily is somebody that can hold contradictory ideas in their minds. So we are all a mixed bag of pros and cons. Everyone has their light and their dark side. So to love someone, to genuinely love someone is to know and understand both their light and their dark and to accept them both. Now, obviously, if someone's dark is too dark, then self-preservation comes into play and you have to love yourself first, always. Always love yourself first. You can love someone from a distance and that's perfectly acceptable. Um, But even yourself, you have your own light and your own dark. Can you love them both or do you feel the need to constantly hide your dark? So if so, that means that's not true love. True love is holding the contradictory ideas of your light and your dark and accepting both as true and factual. Uh, Next is, do you delight in paradox and are you sensitive to irony? And the final uh, question assessment is, do you appreciate the importance of conflict in inspiring creativity? So that's a really cool one. So creativity, so it's not conflict like arguing, but conflict like two conflicting ideas, two things that seem to not go together, uh, working together to inspire creativity. So that's where creativity comes into play. When everything is even and bland, that is not um, going to inspire really innovative ideas. So there's got to be this kind of mashing together of two opposing ideas, and out of that comes something new, Um, like the disparity between male and female. Out of that contradictory paradox, the male and the female come together, and that creates a baby. So that plays out in every aspect of life where paradoxes come together to create something new. So I wanted to go back to that idea of the shadow self. So and I talked about self-love and to love yourself, you have to be, or to love anyone, you have to be comfortable with light and darkness. And one thing that I see in a lot of communities Um, And it's disappointing to see this in spiritual communities because I think a lot of people come to spiritual communities broken and wanting a sense of belonging and acceptance and um, belonging. And but what they find oftentimes is that they are forced to hide uh, their dark. And even though the shadow is tossed around as an idea, you see people's discomfort with that idea because there is this, um, and the new term is toxic positivity, where you see that people only accept positive. So if you say anything that's negative, if you say, oh, you know, my back hurts, oh, you know, people will like correct you. And, and I understand the logic behind that. So we don't want to dwell in the negative. But it can be pushed to an extreme, just like anything can be pushed to an extreme um, to where you're not being authentic and you're not accepting people on their own terms. You're basically saying that I accept you when you are in your light, but when you're struggling in your darkness, I don't want, I, I'm so fragile that I can't handle that and I'm going to correct you and I, I only want to see a smile on your face. I don't want to hear about any of your problems. Um, so that, again, is that's not true love. Now, there's a balance, of course, you know, wallowing in negativity is going to keep you there and is a downward spiral. But we don't have to be so afraid of that that we can't 
be rational, <laughs> that we can't um, acknowledge the fact that there is a light and a dark to life, that there is a light and a dark to other people, and to force people to, to choose only the light. The, the thing is, it doesn't go away. What happens is, and you see this in religion, where uh, there's this obsession with purity, and people will only accept you if you quote-unquote pure, um, but the dark side doesn't go away. All that happens is people become better and better at lying. People become better and better at hiding themselves. And that's the whole phenomenon of the down low and people, you know, maybe being homosexual or having those drives and urges or maybe being bisexual or, or whatever. But because they're not um, allowed to sort of voice these ideas, uh, voice their fantasies or voice their struggles. Um, they have to keep pretending to be pure, or they can exp they can admit that they have feelings, but they always have to like um, come to someone in prayer, like seeking prayer. Oh, I'm struggling with lust, so it always is a bad thing. It's never like okay, lust is um, a part of sexuality, and it's not bad what you have to do is have a safe outlet for your shadow self. Um, so when you're dealing with and trying to love your dark, you don't want to wallow in it and become a bad person. So a bad person is just someone who lives in their shadow, <laughs> you know, day in and day out. But you can also be a bad person if you shun your shadow and you fall into this toxic positivity um, because you're being fake and your shadow is going to come out in some other way, usually in viciousness towards other people uh, because you're so afraid of your shadow that you attack it in others. So that's that phenomenon of people who are trying to hide their own, like say for example, their own homosexual urges and because they have not um, acknowledged that, because they've labeled it as bad and shunned it, they attack it in other people and they become homophobes. Um, so that's just one example of when you don't let your shadow play, it becomes perverse and distorted and, and acts itself out in negative ways. So a person like that, they may not even be homosexual, but because they've labeled any kind of urge in that direction as bad, then it plays itself out as um, harmful and even violent in nature. So the key is to find a way to let your shadow play. Um, so an example of that is, let's say that you are um, someone who has very strong sexual morality. Let's say this is an easy example. So you believe in monogamy, you believe in being faithful, um, and that's how you live your life. But of course, like anyone, you have your shadow side and you think of of tempting things, you think of cheating, you think of perverted things, <laughs> like any normal person. Um, and you don't want to live that in your daily life, but you need to let your shadow play. So if you're in a relationship, you need to be able to explore that with your partner. And hopefully your partner understands the importance of the shadow and they're not going to judge you and blame you for having these thoughts. They're just thoughts. They're not coming to get you. They're not boogeymen. It's okay. So if you have a way to explore those fantasies, maybe with role play or, you know, be creative. <laughs> but that's just one example of if you let your shadow play, it will not come to bite you in the butt later. 
But if you try to hide it and pretend like you don't have those urges, then um, you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> okay. Uh, so lastly, with Sfumato, uh, the chapter explores the idea of incubation and intuition. So I really think this is a very, very important idea for artists. So I'm going to read through the examples that they gave of what this really means. Um, so what incubation means, obviously, is going off to yourself, like when something is incubating, it is walled off and protected, and it's growing and developing in, in its incubation. So uh, one of the quotes I really liked is on page 159, and it says, Incubation is most effective when you alternate, as Leonardo did, between periods of intense, focused work and rest. Without periods of intense, focused work, there is nothing to be incubated. So that's a really important point because, again, it's a balance. So some people are so afraid of being lazy because they know that being lazy uh, gets you nowhere and that you won't achieve your goals if you're lazy. But the problem is then they go to the other extreme and they work, 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 work and they don't allow themselves that period of rest. So, but if you are somebody who says, oh, you know, I'm incubating, and then you're just, you do nothing, you know, from, from for days at a time, <laughs> you can't fool yourself, and that, that's not incubation. You have, to, you have to alternate periods of intense work with rest, because you have to be resting from something. If, if you never do anything, then that's not rest. <laughs> that's laziness. Um, and another quote that I really like is on the next page, 160, it says, neuroscientists estimate that your unconscious database outweighs the conscious on an order exceeding 10 million to one. This database is the source of your creative potential. So this is really important to keep in mind for um, all of my artists and creatives out there is that your unconscious, your subconscious has 10 million times the creativity as your conscious mind. So if you're not giving yourself time to rest and to recover and to step away from your work, you're, you're not tapping, you're, you're 10 million <laughs> in the hole in terms of how creative you could be. Okay, so you've got to give yourself time, whether it's meditation, whether it's going on solo hikes, uh, whatever it is your form of meditation, I believe in sitting meditation. I don't believe there's a real substitute for that, but some people just can't get into it for whatever reason. So there are other ways to meditate, such as walking meditations, yoga, hikes, um, any number of things, um, staring into a flame. That's a variation of sitting meditation. Um, but you've got to do this by yourself. You've got to get time, even if you just sit there. Like, let's say you don't have to strike this pose of, you know, the Buddhist monk pose. That's not necessary. You can just sit on your bed, no noise, no distractions, uh, no nothing. Your eyes can be open. You don't have to adopt any kind of weird stereotypes. But you do need that time away from other people, a time of quiet, where you're, and you're not focusing on your problems, you're not letting your mind race, you're just enjoying the space. And anytime you feel yourself racing and moving on into the future, you just bring yourself back to the present and you just focus on what's right in front of you, whether that's your bed, whether that's your feet, your hands, a, a flame of a candle, 
Um, You're just sitting there and enjoying your breath and enjoying the quiet and thoughts will come to your mind and it's okay to just let those dissipate. And a lot of times those are creative thoughts. So you'll just make a mental note. That's a good idea. You can even jot it down. There's nothing wrong with that. And then you come back to your meditation and you sit there and you, you um, go back to your breath. So I have gotten so many of my ideas and most of my good ideas come from doing that, from just sitting still. And I don't always close my eyes. I just sit there for a period of time and allow myself that quiet. And I'm telling you, like, it's amazing the kind of ideas that come together when you give yourself this time. And this is something that Leonardo did, um, taking regular breaks. So one of the things that he counseled, he said, it is well that you should often take leave. Let me start over. It is well that you should often leave off work and take a little relaxation because when you come back to it, you are a better judge. Now that was from Leonardo himself. So modern psychological research, this is also a quote in the book on page 161, Modern psychological research shows that when you study or work for an hour and then take a complete break for 10 minutes, your recall for the material you have been working on is higher at the end of the 10 minute break than it was at the end of the hour. So this is really good if you are, let's say you are working on your art or your dance performance or your comedy sketch or whatever your creative pursuit is, or if you're studying something for school, um, you do that hour of intense, like like no distractions, focus, um, work for that hour, and then you take a 10 minute break and you do whatever you want for 10 minutes and then you come back to it. What you remember at the end of that 10 minutes is gonna be greater than if you were tested at the end of that hour. You've got to have that period of time of incubation. And the fallacy of the hustle culture, and this is what bugs me about it. And you know, people, you know, these gurus that are, you know, pushing this on people and people, you know, that wanna reach their goals, they can be kind of gullible and they just follow these people like, oh, well, he's rich, so I guess I should listen to him. He may be rich, but that doesn't mean that everything that he's doing is beneficial. That may, I mean, there's lots of reasons why people get get rich. That doesn't mean you follow everything that they do. So this hustle culture idea is toxic. Um, So as I said, you do need to have intense periods of work, but they've gotta be interspersed with the incubation. It just, especially if you're creative, you're not just pushing things out that's when you start to copy yourself. That's when you start to copy other people. You start to rip off other people. You, you get writer's block and all these other kinds of creative blocks because you're not mining that 10 million rich store of your subconscious. You're not mining your intuition. You can't just push, 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 grind, grind, grind and expect that that's going to do something. It's going to create stuff that's banal, stuff that is... Um, that is pitiful, that is not creative, um, that's not the way to go. You've got to intersperse periods of intense work and and you've got to hustle at certain points and you've got to mix that with rest. (laughs) You just have to, otherwise you're going to burn out and what you produce is not going to be even remotely creative or interesting. All right, so that is Sfumato going up in smoke. The 
balancing of the paradoxes of life. So I'm really hoping that this has inspired you to embrace your masculine and your feminine. I hope that it has inspired you to let your shadow self play, to love your light and your dark. And I hope uh, most importantly that it has inspired you to incorporate incubation into your life. So next time we will be going through our next principle of genius. And until then, have a beautiful, creative and productive week. Bye-bye.